Father God, there's a lot of uh, things that run through our hearts and our minds today when we think of this idea of prayer. There's so many things, Lord, we think of. And yet, Lord, I know that one thing that we all have in common here this morning that I have to believe is that as ones who are interested in you and in what true communication with you looks like and sounds like and is like, that, God, we're interested in prayer. And so, Father, today as we talk about this subject of prayer, I pray, God, that you might give us insight into your word. I pray we'd understand it rightly. We believe your word is your truth to us and that guides us into a right understanding of you and how to relate to you this side of heaven. So I pray, God, that as we look at Philippians here today and what it challenges us to on prayer might cause us each to go deeper in our prayer life, have a more meaningful discussion with you on a regular basis. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So here's the deal, folks. Whether you know it or not, whether you live it or not, whether you even like it or not, what we learned last week as we started our study in the book of Philippians is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian here this morning, then what the Bible says is that God has an agenda for your life. He has a purpose for your life. And His purpose is for you to become what He's already declared you are as a follower of Jesus. It's true. It's one of the things that the Bible makes clear from multiple vantage points that the moment you became a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, that God declared certain things now true about your life and that He calls you now to live out those things that are true about you. And so, for instance, the Bible says that when you became a Christian, you're now a new creation. The Bible says that you've crossed over from death into life. It says that you're completely forgiven of all of your sins. It says that you now have been made righteous in God's sight. It says that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power and hope in the midst of whatever, what, 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 anything that life might throw your way. In short, I love how Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says it. It says that He has blessed you in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. The moment that you became a Christian, everything changed in how God sees you and even in reality the very position you have before, before God. And you're now poised to live up to what He says is true about you. And yet once you get that, as we also saw in our introduction last week, that when we're honest with ourselves, however, there's a tension here. In that as much as God has said that these things are true about our lives, we know better. Amen? We know that as much as we're completely forgiven of our sin, we still sin. We know that as much as God has called us the righteousness of God, we're not very righteous at times. We know that as much as He has said, you're a new creation in Christ. You don't always feel like a new creation in Christ, especially when you're living out of your old self. In other words, there's a mismatch. There's a tension that we all feel between these things that God says are now true about us and what we're really like on a day-in and day-out basis. And so we asked the question last week, what do we do with that? How do we live that tension without going nuts? And this is where the book of Philippians comes in. Because in the midst of declaring all of these wonderful and powerful things that you and I now are because of followers of Christ, the book of Philippians also says, now here's what you can do to become what you are. Here are some things that you can do to live up to 
the truisms that God now declares about your life. So that's the whole point of the book of Philippians, is encouraging us about all these things that we are now in Christ, what we called the true you last week, but then at the same time saying, we understand that you fall short of that. Now here are some things you can do or become in your life to now live out of the true sense of your identity in Christ. And so taking us through topic after topic after topic in just four short chapters, literally nine topics we're going to look at, it shows us how we can become all the that we deep down want to be and certainly who God wants us to be. And as I mentioned before I prayed, it begins right here in chapter 1 with probably one of the most important and crucial issues of all, the issue of prayer. And so in keeping with our theme of you've already become certain things, and so now here's what you can do to grow more in Christ, look at our main point here this morning, and it's this. And that is that since you are a saint... And since a good work has begun in you, and since grace is now yours, and since you are full of righteousness, we're going to see the Scriptures tell us all that is true about you, prayer now equals peace for you. It's true. Some of you don't believe it yet, but you will by the end of the day, that since all these things are true about you, what the Scriptures say is that when you pray, you now can have peace. In fact, you should have peace each and every time you pray. So what do we mean by this? Well, I want you to notice with me how chapter 1 of Philippians strings together some amazing truisms right now that are true about you simply because of your salvation in Christ. You've got to latch on to this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. All the saints in Christ Jesus. If you underline in your Bible, I dare you to underline saints. Then look at verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Then verse 7. You are all partakers with me of grace. And then verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So now maybe you see Do you get the sense of you already are something simply because you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Notice that it says you're a saint. That word simply means God's holy people set apart for His use. We're not talking saint in the sense of perfect. We're not talking saint in the sense of more holier than thou. And we're certainly not talking about some super spiritual person who should be canonized like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or anything like that. No, the Bible is simply talking about somebody who has been adopted into God's family because of Christ, set apart and now called to a specific way of functioning and following Him. It's a saint. And then look at verse 6. It says, as a saint, a good work has begun in you. God has begun something, a purifying, a purifying, a refining, a whittling process where he's now honing your character and your life to become all that he wants you to be. A good work has begun in you. We'll get more to that in a minute. And to make sure that this gets done, what do you have? You're a partaker of grace. That is probably one of the most powerful phrases in all of the Bible. You're a partaker of grace, which simply means that all of God's goodness, all of His grace, He now has opened up to you in Christ. All the resources of His mercy, His love, His kindness, His power have been opened up to you in Christ. You're a partaker of that. And then he caps it all up by saying you're also filled with the fruit of righteousness, which simply means that even if you're a brand new Christian here today, there's some fruit already in your life. 
Even that initial burst of joy that the Holy Spirit, because He lives in you, has now brought into your life. And so with all of this behind you, knowing that God is on your side, that He's in your life, that He's not going to leave, the Scriptures say then that because of this, when we pray, we have peace. It's unmistakable. Flip over to chapter 4. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is what I'm talking about. You can't escape the implications. With the understanding of chapter 1, that you are these things, look at what chapter 4 says about our prayer life. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which transcends or surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do not miss the link here, folks. Prayer equals peace. It's not complicated. And it's what every Bible commentator points out here, that the clear implication, that's not even implied, it's just overt, is that Paul's saying when you pray, you will have peace. It's fascinating. The original language that Philippians was written in the Greek language, Paul is actually using here a specific grammatical form called a parataxis, Parataxis. It's simply a fancy way of saying that he begins a sentence with the word and. We do that in English sometimes. We begin a sentence with and, or, or but. We begin it with a conjunction. And though it used to be when I was in third grade, you weren't allowed to do that. It's become really acceptable now, right? Like, it's okay to do. Well, back in the Greek days, you didn't usually begin a sentence with a conjunction. But if you did, you were trying to make a specific point. You were trying to link the two ideas together really closely. And they called it a parataxis. And so in verse 6 there, when Paul says, you need to pray, and then he begins verse 7 by saying, and, don't miss, he's just linking it really closely, saying, when you pray, peace is going to come into your life. That's his main point here. Pray, and peace will come. And in describing this peace, let's not try to weasel out of this one, notice with me that Paul clearly means by peace something that surpasses all human comprehension and will completely guard your heart and your mind. So it's not just some like mamby-pamby little kind of peace, like, oh, I prayed and I feel a little better right now, but I'm going to feel worse in three seconds. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of peace in which you look back and say, whoa, only God, I don't even understand this peace I have. Only God could give me a peace like that. Remember last week I told you, Philippians was a military town. So Paul is using military terms here. He says it's the kind of peace that if your heart was a military outpost, this kind of prayer is going to guard it. This kind of peace is going to guard your heart from anything else getting in. Pray and you will have peace. Now, With that all said, I want to get really honest with you guys and ask you how often this comes true for you. How often is it that when you pray, you have immediate and unmistakable peace? How often is that experience real for you? I'm guessing that if you and I were having a cup of coffee this morning, and I as your pastor and friend just said, just level with me, how often has it happened to you? The more godly of you would say, once in a while. The more godly of you would say, you know what, I had an experience back in 1999 where I prayed, and, and, and I had that kind of peace come. And it, and it lasted a little while, Jamie, and it was really cool and it was awesome. But if I said, 1999, you do realize that it's 2011, right? I mean, when, when was the last time, you godly people, that, that, that you prayed and you had peace? The average Christian today 
would be hard-pressed to say that, one, it happens regularly, two, that it would happen all the time. And yet the way that Philippians 4, 6, and 7 are written is that this is supposed to be the normative experience for the follower of Jesus. That no matter what you're going through, you're supposed to pray, and immediately when you pray, that peace is to come. And the question I want to wrestle with is why doesn't that happen to us more often? I mean, I know many of you pray. I pray. We pray all the time. We pray driving down the road. We pray in our offices. We pray at home. We pray before meals. We pray, we pray all the time. We have prayer meetings in this church all the time. And yet we have a lot of people walking around with non-peace. And so the question is, what are we missing? Why is it that we can pray and not get peace? Are the scriptures lying or are we missing something? I would suggest to you here that there are three things that Philippians 1, we're going to go back to chapter 1, says about our prayer life that if they are not true about our prayer life, then there's a good chance we won't have peace. Or let me say it this way. There's three things that Philippians adds to our prayer life that if you miss and don't have, there's a good chance that you're going to pray and not experience the peace of chapter 4. And I'm going to encourage you right off the bat as I share these three things with you. I'm not going to tell you to pray more here today. Aren't you tired of hearing that from pastors? I hear that all the time. When I, you know, I don't want to have peace when I pray. Well, just pray more. And I'm like, well, I'm already praying a lot. Well, just pray more. You know, you know, but pray more and more and more and more and more and you have peace. I, I, and there have been times where I prayed for hours on end, not had peace. And, and so I'm not sure there's always more that God is after. Remember the babbling pagans that Jesus talked about? He said, you can babble on and on and on in your prayers and get nowhere. So I'm not sure that those who say the answer is always more are right. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray, pray more. If you walk out today saying, Pastor, say we shouldn't pray more, you heard me wrong. I'm just saying that I'm not sure more is always better when it comes to the quality of our prayer life. Second thing I'm not going to do with you in the remainder of our time today is I'm not going to give you some creative little acrostic on how you can pray more concertedly. I did that in the Daniel series. So if you want to go back, it was a really cool acrostic called PAR, and you can go look at that, and you have the Acts acrostic and all that. But I'm going to really follow closely the text here, and the text, as usual, doesn't give us an acrostic. It just shares with us three things that need to be front and center in your prayers or you're not going to have peace. Here's the first one. We need to pray with thanksgiving. You need to pray with thanksgiving. Some of you are saying right now, you're thinking, I know how you think. You're thinking, well, Jamie, I do pray with thanksgiving. Next, I want you to slow down in front of this for a second because I'm not sure that we're all thanking God for the kind of things that bring us peace. Look at verses 3 and 5 and 6 of Philippians 1. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, then verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So he begins by saying, I thank my God. What's the content of my prayer? I thank God for you. And some of you are thinking right now, well, I mean, I thank God all the time in my life, but that doesn't necessarily bring peace. And so how can we sometimes thank God, even thank Him for other people, and not experience His peace? And it's a good question. And the answer, though I don't mean to be too hard on us, but I'm going to point the finger back at me here too, is that if Paul the Apostle thanked God for what most American Christians today thank God for, I don't think he would have had a lot of peace in his prayer life. 
In other words, I'm going to suggest to you here this morning that one of the reasons that many of us don't experience peace when we're in a thankful mode before God is because, now listen close, it's not that we're thanking God for the wrong things. It's just that we're thanking Him for things that are probably like number 49 or 50 on His thankful list, and we have yet to get into the top 10 of the things that He thinks that we should be thanking Him for. And you're saying, well, what do you mean? It's fascinating. You can look closely here at the book of Philippians. Read it on your own, maybe as your homework from here today, or any other New Testament book, and you will never find any of the apostles, the disciples, or Paul thanking God for their new chariot. You will not find them thanking God that their kids got into that exclusive Roman school. You will not find them thanking God that their retirement account in Athens was doing really well. You will not find them thanking God that the Jerusalem industrial average was up. You will not find them thanking God that they got promoted at work. You will not find them thanking God even all that often, if ever, for their health. Isn't that revealing? The things that you and I thank God for all the time. We're driving home from the car. Thanks God for this car. Thanks God for my health. Thank you that I got out of Mayo. Okay. Thank you for this. And by the way, these are all good things. And I'm sure that the apostles and disciples were thankful for those things. It's just interesting, isn't it, that it never makes the Scriptures. Isn't it interesting that there are never things that Paul begins his letters saying, I thank the Lord for my health. I thank the Lord for my last possession. I thank the Lord that my kids are all turning out right. I thank the Lord that my finances aren't a mess. He he, he doesn't do any of that. And so so you and I should be asking the question, well then what is it that he was thanking God for? What is it the things that he thanked God for that brought peace? I'm so glad you asked. Notice two things (laughs) that Paul thanks God for here. Two directions that his thankfulness went in that made all the difference in the kind of prayer that brought peace. First, now put this up on the screen, he thanked God that the Philippians were saved and serving. Did you pick up on that? He thanked God that his friends were saved, because that's kind of like a priority, and that they were serving God in the kingdom. Look at verse 5. He says, I thank my God because of your participation or your partnership in the gospel. Your partnership in the gospel. Now, that word partnership in the original Greek language is the second most common Greek word that all Americans know. The first Greek word that all Americans know is agape, right? Love, 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 love. The second one is koinonia. You've probably heard that word before. Many of you have. The word koinonia, it means fellowship. But most literally, what the word koinonia means is for you to join something, to get on board with something, to be a player with something. That's why it's translated partnership here. Because what Paul is saying is that I'm thankful that you Philippians know the gospel, that you responded by becoming followers of Christ, and that you're now a partner with me. You've joined the kingdom in using your gifts to serve God and spread the good news. He was thankful that they were players in the kingdom. And then hang on to that. Notice me a second direction that his thanks went. And that was that he was thankful. Now, this is very tricky, but notice He was thankful that God was up to something significant in their friends' lives, in his friends' lives, even in the midst of their hardship and trouble that God was obviously not taking away. Did you follow all that? He was thankful. We'll see that in a second here in verse 6. That he who began a good work in them was carrying it on until the day of Christ Jesus. But we know that good work couldn't have been relief and blessings because they didn't have much of that in their lives right then. 
In other words, the things that were top on their prayer list maybe for their health and for their circumstances and for the persecution they were experiencing and all that, God had yet to deliver them from. In fact, Paul the Apostle would never be delivered from those things. And so Paul chose to thank God for something even more substantive and higher in the Philippians' life. He chose to thank them that God was still working in their lives nonetheless and that whatever he was up to, he was going to carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's verse 6. Don't miss this, folks. Paul was thankful that in the midst of his hardship and struggles, in the midst of their hardship and struggles, the same hardships and struggles that God had chosen not to take out of their lives, he was thankful that they were still participating in the gospel, and he was thankful that God, this God of grace, was still pouring out his presence and activity in their lives and was up to something confirming and honing their character, pulling them closer to Jesus Christ, even in the midst of all of their struggle and hardship. And so isn't it fascinating that instead of taking away or praying that God would take away their tough, tough circumstances, He thanks them. He thanks God that He is front and center in their lives and that He was the one who was taking up residence in their souls and doing His refining work in them. And so let me ask you the $10 question. When you pray for relief and comfort in your life and in your friends' and family members' lives, when you pray for all those things that I mentioned earlier that we tend to pray for that God would do in our lives, the financial, the health, the material, the relational blessings, and when God does not take those things away, what do you pray then? What do you pray then? The average Christian does one of two things. He or she either continues to bug God about those things, which I'm not sure is an all bad thing, but you might be bugging Him for an awfully long time, or they just stop praying altogether when it comes to that person in their life. Am I right? We just stop praying altogether. We either continue to bug God. Larry Crabb calls it a demandingness before God. We continue to be demanding before God, like a three-year-old who wants a candy bar, that he better give us that snicker bar. Or we stop and we just take our ball and we go home. And yet Paul the Apostle is setting a tone here for you and me that that neither response is godly, that we need to dig deeper and start to ask God for the right things and basically say, okay, God, if you're not going to do this in somebody's life, I'm still going to pray for it because I'd like to see you move this way, but I'm going to take my prayers even deeper. He who began a good work is going to complete it in you. I have confidence in that. That's going to be my prayer for you. I don't even know what God is up to in your life, but I know that He who began a good work in you is going to finish it so He's up to something in your life. And I'm going to pray toward that end in your life to the point that you're going to have peace and I'm going to have peace. Do you see how that works? One of my best pastor friends right now is uh, in the midst of an arduous battle with cancer with his wife. He's about 61 years old. She's a couple years younger, maybe the same age way too young to leave this earth. And for six years, she has battled metastasized breast cancer that's now gone to her brain. On a regular basis, their elder team, their kids, their family, their friends who have surrounded them them in this community have prayed regularly that God would take this away that he would give skill and wisdom to the doctors, that he would bring wholeness and healing to Susan's life. And people are continuing to pray that, myself included, But you know, I was confronted the other day as I was thinking of my friends there. Well, what do we pray in addition to that? You ever thought about that? I mean, for six years, God has chosen not to bring a healing to her life. 
Which, by the way, in the Bible, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But does that mean we don't pray? What more do we pray for her? You see, there's a prayer that can bring peace to her, to my friend, and to me as I pray for them. And that is a prayer that they're partakers of grace and that God would pour His grace out on them. That God, who gave them a deep sense of His presence at the time of their conversion, would give them an equally deep sense of His presence now. That God, who sustained them through perseverance in very difficult times when they got saved back in the 1980s, is the same God who can cause them to persevere with joy now, even in the present moment. That God, who began a good work in them, is going to finish it until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you believe that for people around you? Do you believe that for those around you? So much so that even if God does not answer all of our prayers of relief and comfort, that there's still a prayer we have, a thankful prayer, that He who began a good work is going to finish His work in them. And though we might not know what it is, we pray nonetheless. And I'm telling you folks, learn to pray that kind of thankful prayer. God will move. He will do something in which you look back on it and you say, only God, and you will have peace. Truly praying with thanksgiving, especially when our thanksgiving is focused on the things that God is about and up to, not just relief and comfort, but the real things that He is up to, is the first step to the kind of prayers that bring peace. Now notice it doesn't stop there. Notice with me, and if you thought that was challenging, this is even more challenging. Notice with me a second quality to prayer that promises to bring peace as well, and again, one that many Christians miss, and that is we need to pray with joy. We need to pray with joy. Some of you are saying right now, oh, come on, I really don't want to hear this. Yes, you do. Look at verse 4 and then verses 7 through 8. It says, Always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer, here it is, with joy. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Many of you have heard this before, but you know that that word joy there does not mean giddy happiness. Give me a head nod that you all understand that, right? So when he says joy, he doesn't mean the kind of happiness you get when you buy something at Best Buy. That's not joy. When he says joy, he doesn't mean the kind of happiness you get when you, want to watch, when you watch a Walt Disney movie. That, that's not what he's talking about. In the original Greek, that word joy means a calm delight. A calm delight. It's a contentment that's deep down in your life in the midst of all the discouragement and difficult times, you have a joy, a river that runs deeper than all the waves going nuts at the surface. And more than anything else, with that understanding, notice two overriding characteristics of this joy that was infused in Paul's prayers that I'm convinced gave him peace. First, it was a joy that transcended his present circumstances. It was not dependent on circumstances. And secondly, it was a joy that was born of choice, pure choice. And this will make all the difference for you today. Folks, first, notice that it was a joy that transcended Paul's present circumstances. And we know this because he's writing from prison for crying out loud. So he's in in prison, he's been beaten, he's had friends who have deserted him, he has churches that are letting him down big time, and he says to the Philippians, I pray with joy. And so you've got to ask yourself, well, there's not a lot in your life right now, Paul, that's giving you joy, and so where did that joy come from? And his answer would be, well, it's certainly not coming from all of this crud. It's certainly not coming from my circumstances. It transcends my circumstances, and it comes from God. 
And then you say, well, how did you get that joy from God? That's the second thing. I chose it. Some of you are saying, is that biblical? It is biblical. Look at verse 4. This is a fascinating thing in the text. Paul says, always making my prayer with joy. Focus on that word making. It's a word the NASB translates offering. So offering my prayer with joy. ESV, making my prayer with joy. If you use a New International Version Bible, I'm just going to diss it a little bit. My wife reads the NIV, so I've got to be careful here. But the NIV completely misses this word making or offering here. doesn't even use it. It just says, I always pray with joy. That's tragic because it's in the original language. And the power of that word making is that it literally means to accomplish something, to do something, to produce something. It carries with it the idea that you are choosing to do something that you offer voluntarily to make something happen. And what's the context here? Paul's saying, I choose to pray and I choose to pray with joy. I will not allow my present circumstances to rob me of that calm delight that I can feel when I think of all that God is doing in your life, Philippians. That despite the schemes of the evil one, despite the persecution you're going through, despite the heartache, despite the disappointment, I choose joy when I think of you guys. I choose joy that looks beyond all your temporal problems and I see what God is up to in your life and I have a smile on my face. Do you see how that works, folks? And do you see how that kind of prayer can bring peace? You have a choice each moment of each day when you pray. You can either pray like Eeyore with a lot of gloom on your face, right? Or you can choose to pray with joy, even in difficult circumstances. And I'm telling you, folks, this is real and it breeds peace. I know I've told you the story before, but it's just it's the most real example I know. So a gal in my last church named Marlena, she has given me permission to share this story. Marlena's written a book called The Elephant in the Room. Margie's read it. And it, it's a very, very um, hard-hitting book about how when Marlena was 13 years old on a family vacation to the beach, she was raped brutally uh, on the beach there by a strange man at the age of 13 years old. Her parents wanted to kind of push it all under the rug, and so they just said they took her to the hospital, and they did the hospital thing, but then said, let's just not talk about this, and hopefully it will all go away. And as you can imagine, it doesn't. And so Marlena grew into young womanhood, and and as a young woman, she hated men. She gained a lot of weight. She didn't want anything to do with a lot of intimacy or fellowship in her life, all the things that you can imagine. But she also became a Christian during that time. And she drug all that stuff into her Christianity. As a young Christian woman, she said, I still don't want much to do with men, but I'm going to read the Bible. I really don't want to have intimacy, but I'm going to join a fellowship group. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to do all the things I do, but I'm going to do them now as a Christian. And through a very long uh, process for her, she found an immense amount of freedom in her relationship with Christ, an immense amount of healing, which is for another story in her life. And then she eventually wrote a book about it about how she recovered from sexual abuse and had found incredible peace in her relationship with Christ. And she speaks all over the nation on that subject. And she attended the church I just came from three and a half years ago in Cleveland. And I'll never forget one particular Sunday. Marlena, who always sat in the second row, was having a rough day. I assumed she was either fighting with her husband Dan or something was wrong in her life and she was having a rough day. I could see it on her face. And she had some tears as she was worshiping. And then after the message, she came up to me. And I gave her a hug and I said, what's going on, dear? And she just said, well, it's it's a rough day, but it doesn't have anything to do with circumstances. She said, it's just that, you know, a lot of the dragons from the past are are, are still kind of in my life right now. They're still there and I'm battling them right now. 
And through the tears, she did something that was so real that I see so rarely off, uh, see so rare, it's not so often. And that's it. She looked at me and she said with just a little smile on her face while still the tears, she said, but I choose joy. She said, but in this moment, I choose joy. And there was a resolve on her face, a, a lightening of her heart, a, a quickening of her spirit, in which, again, you had to be there that was so real. I looked at her, I gave her a hug, and I said, good for you. This is a woman who wakes up every day, and she looks to her Savior and says, how do you want to use me today? Some of you know people like that. And she has joy and peace, peace like a river flowing through her life. And I got a glimpse that one Sunday morning of how she gets to that joy. That even on her rough days, even in the most difficult times of her life, even with the tears flowing, because she's not denying anything, she chooses joy. And here's the deal. You can do that too. You can choose joy in your life. And as you choose joy and start to pray with joy, Philippians 4 will become real for you. You will have peace. So you pray with thanksgiving. You pray with joy. And then there's one more thing that Paul shares with us as we wrap this thing up in the opening verses of Philippians here that I believe is also central to prayer leading to peace. And if there's anything that the average Christian today misses when it comes to his or her prayer life, it is this, and that is that we need to pray for love. We need to pray for love. And some, if not most of you, were not expecting this one. I mean, how often, church, do we hear a call to pray specifically and pointedly for love? We don't. I mean, Ed, when was the last time somebody said to you, hey, I want you to pray for so-and-so that they might have more love in their life? No one asks for that kind of prayer request today. We pray for world peace. We pray for salvation. We pray for the hurting. We pray for the hungry. We pray for things. We pray for the sick. But when was the last time somebody asked you to pray for another person's love? And yet, you know what's fascinating, folks? It's like a scratch CD. Paul does this all throughout his epistles, and even here in Philippians. He does it all the time. Look at verses 9 and 10 of our epistle before us today. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He does that same prayer in Colossians chapter 1, the same prayer in Ephesians 1, the same prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. I mean, over and over again, Paul prays this theme of love upon the people around him, and we've got to ask ourselves, what's that about? I mean, why is he so concerned about this thing called love? It's really easy. And that is because Paul knows that if he can get believers more in love with Jesus and get believers more loving toward one another, which is what grace is all about then all the other stuff's going to start to fall into place, including the peace that we're looking for. And you see, we think it's the other way around. We think that we need to pray for somebody's righteousness. We think that we need to pray that all their problems are solved. We think that we need to pray all these things over their lives. Paul says, no, 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 you don't get it. Those things are byproducts. 
Jesus taught us it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what flows from his heart. So it's what flows from somebody's heart. It's where somebody's heart is that will eventually change their life. So if you pray anything for those around you, just pray that the love of God would so so enamor them, that they'd be so drawn to his love for them, that his love would change them so much that they couldn't help but love others around them, and then watch everything else fall into place. That's what Paul's saying here. Watch knowledge and discernment and approval and all these other things that we are so concerned about fall into place as their love abounds more and more. Pray for love, and it will give peace to you and to those around you. You know, as I was thinking about this all last night, I was thinking, how do we wrap this up? How do we, you know, put closure on this message here today? And I thought of a passage tucked away in Isaiah that's actually a much more simple passage than this one we've been looking at today. And I'm going to read it for you. See where I'm going here in a minute as we wrap this up. The passage is found in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. It's not even here on the screen, so don't try to find it there. But just listen to it. You've heard this before. Some of you have. It's a passage tucked away in Isaiah. And it says this. It says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Let me repeat that. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That is one of the most powerful passages in all the Old Testament because it's true that if we can learn to have our mind stay on God, if we can learn to trust him through everything, then what he promises, and this is just the word saying it, is perfect peace. Amen? Perfect peace. So the question becomes, based on Isaiah 26, how do we keep our mind stayed on him? Right? How do we trust him each moment of each day? I would submit to you that's the answer that Philippians 1 gives that we've looked at today. That the way that your mind stays on Christ, the way that your heart stays attuned to Him, is for you to pray regularly with thanksgiving. But thank Him for the right things. Thank Him for the deeper things that He's doing in your life and in other people's lives. And then secondly, choose to pray with joy. Choose it. You can choose it each moment of each day. We're not talking about that happy, giddy, shallow stuff deep contentment, a satisfaction that says, I find my satisfaction in God. Choose that and then pray that for those around you. And then thirdly, pray for love. Pray that your church would become a place enamored with God's love so that we become the most loving thing in Scottsdale. Pray that the people around you would be so taken with God's love that they become loving to you and everybody else around them. And let's see God's grace manifest itself, as Peter would say, in all of its various forms, because we're so taken with his love. As you pray those things, thanksgiving, joy, love, you will find that your heart stays upon him, your mind stays upon him, and he will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on him. Let's pray. Father, as we started off this morning, we declared that this would be the kind of look at your Scripture that hopefully would make every mother proud. (laughs) And I think it is. Lord, I think of my own mom today in a small farming community in Ohio right now, uh, going to church herself today, and how I know for her, the more that I talk to you, the more that I walk with you, the more that I look to you, the more she is pleased and her prayers come true. And so, God, i got to believe that as we've looked at prayer today, what a great gift we've been able to give to mothers and certainly to their children Father, I pray for all of us that as we uh, contemplate our own prayer lives maybe a little bit more today, as we contemplate our own communication with you and wrestle with the fact of why we don't have more peace, that we might 
tend to link together the answers that Philippians gives us here. That we might link it to the things that we're thanking you for. That we might link it to the things that we're choosing and not choosing when it comes to joy. That we might link it to our prayers for love and the infusion of your love in our church and in our own lives. And God, I pray that as we repent of those things, repent of our shallowness, repent of the uh, lack of depth in our prayers, that, Father, you might bring peace to our lives. As we pray with thanksgiving, pray with joy, and pray for love, that, God, indeed, that perfect peace, that peace that passes all understanding, might start to hold us more firm in our daily circumstances. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that your grace knows no bounds and that every one of us here today can be partakers, partners of your grace in the gospel of Christ as we choose to follow Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. God bless you and have a great day.